You're listening to the N2K Space Network. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Welcome to T-Minus Deep Space. I'm Maria Varmazis, host of the T-Minus Space Daily Podcast. Deep Space includes extended interviews and bonus content that takes a deeper look into some of the topics that we cover on our daily program. We hope you enjoy. Now, my guest today is so notable, I'm going to let her speak for herself. My name is Eileen Collins. I'm a former NASA astronaut. I've flown in space four times on the space shuttle, twice as a pilot, twice as commander. I also have uh, time in the United States Air Force as a pilot, instructor pilot, and test pilot. And my most recent activity was uh, publishing a book. It's called Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars, the story of the first American woman to pilot and command a spacecraft. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for joining me today. It's an honor to have you. And I can't imagine a better person to ask about human spaceflight. And I would love to get your thoughts on Virgin Galactic's Unity 25 and the Axiom 2 and how the training that those crew have received differs from how you were trained. It's actually very different. So let's take the Axiom mission, which uh, launched uh, Sunday, May 21st, and this, these Axiom Flux, so Axiom Space is a private company. They are sort of an intermediary for private astronauts that want to fly in space, specifically go to the United States Space Station. Now, our International Space Station is the United States uh, National Lab, and it's international. We've got other countries involved, you know, Russia, Japan, the Europeans are involved in that. But there is opportunities for private people to uh, do research on the space station. So they do that through Axiom. So this Axiom, this is the second launch actually that uh, went up uh, earlier this week. And they are non-NASA astronauts. In fact, two of them are from Saudi Arabia. One is a private pilot, private citizen who's funding his own flight. And then the commander is Peggy Whitson, who's a former NASA astronaut. So they're going to be on the space station for about 10 days. This is not a U.S. government flight. The taxpayers are not paying for it. If anything, the taxpayers are benefiting from it. 
And so that's different. So when we flew the space shuttle for 30 years, back from 1981 through 2011, the space shuttle program was a totally a government program, and it was uh, owned and operated by NASA. And now, as spaceflight is becoming uh, more common, it's becoming safer, you see more and more people flying. And, and by the way, you did ask about the Virgin Galactic flight. That is a completely private company. And they are doing another test flight. They're taking up six people, but they're all company people. Two pilots and uh, four engineers from the company are doing a test flight. And if that's successful, they'll start flying private passengers. Last I knew, the private passengers are paying for this flight. And it's just, it's just you know, maybe a half an hour to an hour flight. But they do go to space. What would the civilians, I mean, these are especially, um, there are civilians on these flights. What can they expect when they go up to suborbital space? Yeah, so the suborbital flight, so Virgin Galactic does a suborbital flight, so which means they do not go around the Earth. These orbital flights actually go around the Earth, they orbit, that's what our space station does. But the Virgin Galactic flight, which it will launch out of New Mexico underneath the wing of a larger aircraft, and the spacecraft gets dropped, they, at about 40,000 feet, they light their engine and up they go. And they'll go up to over 50 miles. So what will they expect? Uh, a, a period of time, I'm going to say about five minutes of zero gravity. This is a uh, piloted flight. So you will have two pilots up front uh, like you would have in an airplane. And they're actually uh, controlling the flight. And they will, in fact, I know some of the pilots uh, myself. And I think that they're they're excellent uh, pilots. They're very trustworthy. So I think in that respect, it's a very safe flight. But those in the back will, they'll unstrap and they'll float around and they can do experiments if they want. They probably have a little plan on what they're going to do. But when you look out the window from that altitude uh, over 50 miles, you're going to see a darker sky. You're going to see a curved horizon. Uh, you're not going to see the whole earth because you're not high enough to see the entire earth. But you will see that the the Earth is definitely not flat, <laughs> and you're, you're going to. And some people say you'll see the stars at noon. So uh, I think they're going to have a great experience. Uh, the good thing about these flights is the more of them that fly, the safer they will get, and the uh, less expensive they will get in the future. More and more people will have the chance to do that. But you know, right now it's just it's not open to a lot of people because most can't afford the high price tag. But I'm hoping like the evolution of the airplane the evolution of uh, spaceflight will be happening in our lifetime and more people can do this. Given that, especially the civilians who are flying on these flights, are there any safety concerns for those folks? I mean, they didn't go through nearly as much rigorous training as you did, for example. So what does that intru- what kind of risk does that introduce? Yeah, yeah. So there is risk. There are safety concerns. You know, any flight in space involves risk. But, you know, the only way to be totally safe is to never go. And, you know, that's not the kind of people we are. We want to go and explore so I am sure that each of these passengers that will be that will be going up on the flight will go through a minimum of safety training. For example, uh, what if there's a fire? What if there's a loss of cabin pressure? Um, you know, you need to put your oxygen on if there's a loss of cabin pressure. Uh, hopefully, they won't. That won't happen at 50 miles because your uh, time of useful consciousness is basically less than one second. So I, you don't want things like that to happen. They will not be wearing pressure suits. Because you know that's that adds a whole other layer of complication. And if you have a what do I say a, a tight aircraft that, that is built pretty solid, it's not going to leak. Then you can make a case for not taking a pressure suit. 
so they'll, they'll do a, a minimum of training to understand the spacecraft. Probably one other thing is if you have to land in an emergency, how would you do an emergency evacuation? Things like that. But I think it's probably pretty minimal. But, but they will get the training because, honestly, the training is part of the experience and people like to do that. We'll be right back after this quick break. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills, all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. So going to switch gears for a moment from uh, human spaceflight to that's happening right now to looking ahead to moon to Mars. Um, specifically the uh, the Mars replication simulation. I, I'm not sure how to describe it. The the simulator environment that the experiment that's going to be happening this summer hasn't been as big news as I think it should have been. So I'd like to talk about it a little bit. What is that and what kind of experiments are they going to be conducting during this very long mission? Right. So this mission um, I, uh, will take place out of Johnson Space Center. So it's on the ground and it's a simulation it is a about a seventeen to nineteen hundred uh, square foot facility. There will be four people that have volunteered. They were actually selected to go into the simulation for a year, and they're going to start uh, sometime in June. This will start, and I know you're going to see more of it in the news. Now, there have been simulations like this in the past that were not run by the government; they were run by private companies, and they've had various levels of success. This one, I think, is going to be very interesting in the fact that these four people will be locked up in basically in quarantine for a year. And I think that the psychological side of it is going to be the most interesting. Now, on the scientific side, they are being given experiments to do uh, that, that are similar to what the astronauts will do on Mars, such as growing plants, you know, making sure you have a food supply, uh, you know, doing, you know, 
Mars has uh, got a very dusty environment, so they will be doing spacewalks, simulated spacewalks, because there's also an, an outside part of this uh, simulation chamber that looks like the surface of Mars with dust in a painted landscape. So they will be practicing uh, surface spacewalks, uh, going out and doing geology. And I know the engineers will set up things for them to do, things like collecting rocks or doing uh, engineering on the solar panels. And by the way, all of the electricity that will be generated on Mars for now will be through solar panels. Um, eventually down the road, there will be for, because solar is going to uh, get dusty and they will wear out over time. But if you have a small nuclear device that can provide electricity, that's something that's even farther off in the future. That won't be part of the simulation, but they will have solar arrays. And so they'll be doing a variety of experiments. And I think the, real, the key thing and the thing that I'm interested in watching is how are they getting along with each other, these four people, and how are they handling the fact that they're in quarantine and you can't just go out and get a cheeseburger or you can't you know, go out and get some sun on your face or go for a run. Um, they will have exercise equipment. I know that. And they will have access to the internet and the telephone and they'll be able to uh, interact. Like if you remember yourself working from home during the pandemic, it'll be something like that, but you can't go out. I, I personally think I'd have a hard time with this. Um, and I have flown in space four times. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. If they can always call uncle and say, I'm done, let me out. But then you would have a failure. So there's going to be some pressure on them to stick it out. And it, probably the biggest challenge is selecting the right people to do this. So to do the simulation, but we also have to select the right people that will eventually go to Mars is part of NASA's Artemis program. And that's the reason why NASA is doing this is to help evaluate what kind of characteristics do we want in our Mars astronauts, because they're going to need to be very strong people mentally, emotionally, as well as uh, physically strong. Absolutely. And I would imagine also, in addition to that, very perhaps different levels and areas of expertise for the mission on Mars. So you're going to be looking at huge swaths of very different kinds of folks. What kind of personality, uh, I mean, strong personality, obviously, but what kind of team dynamics are going to be necessary to really make this mission a success? Yeah, so I can answer that question on many levels. First of all, yeah, I think you would want uh, introverts. You know, in the way uh, you know the Myers Briggs defines that's a, a test, a psychological test you may have heard of. They define an introvert as a person who gains strength from within, and an extrovert is a person who gains strength from being with other people. So I would think you'd want people to, who are more introverted. The other thing is you have to give them work that is meaningful. They cannot be sitting there twiddling their thumbs or doing routine uh, over and over, you know, work that they know is just busy work and they're not contributing something uh, useful as part of this test. So uh, giving them meaningful work to do is, is very, very high. And also giving them an opportunity to talk with people on the outside, uh, doctors and psychologists or, uh, you know, people that they can it, 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 and they need to be honest. You, you don't want to like say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going, know that you're going crazy because you're cooped up and then you don't want to tell anybody. But I honestly think that NASA has picked people that are going to that know that they're going to be able to handle this. And if something comes up, they have some risk management procedures where, you know, you can talk to someone or maybe you can change the schedule or, uh, you know, I think, I think they've probably got a pretty good handle on that. 
by selecting the right people. So I have faith in them. I don't know any of these folks that are going in. There's no active astronauts that are part of this, but they are people that are similar to, you know, in age and as far as their backgrounds to the astronauts. Oh, and by the way, one other thing to answer your question is we need people with engineering talent to go to Mars. For example, you know how to fix things that when they break down or you know, uh, maybe mechanical ability, or you know how to design something, maybe a workaround to something that's broken down and there's not a pre-planned way to fix it. Maybe someone with some creativity, engineering talent that can fix things. There is some talk, you know, should we send doctors to Mars? And, and that's a good question. Uh, do you want, uh, or do you want to just take engineers and give them the training that they would need in case of an emergency? So uh, all of those are uh, discussions going on right now. But if I, w- if I was going to Mars, I want people that can fix things when they break down, especially my life support equipment, <laughs> my oxygen and my water. You want that working. Um, so speaking of the Moon to Mars program and thinking really more broadly about the Artemis program, you were someone who was a woman, a first woman who took a lot of incredible steps, actually twice over, to be the first woman to do <laughs> several things. And thinking about Christina Cook, who's going to be the first woman to fly around the moon. So I guess it's a two-part question. What is it like carrying that mantle of being a first woman twice over in your case? And do you have any advice for someone like Christina who's about to embark on something incredible? Yeah, what's it like is a longer answer. I'll I'll answer the second part of that. Do I have any advice? Uh, Stay focused. And I think Christina probably doesn't need any advice. Uh, She's uh, highly experienced, but I I have met her. Um, I've never worked with her before directly, but I I know her. If you just stay focused on your mission and what you're doing, don't get distracted by, you know, constant requests uh, from the outside to do this or that. You've got to realize that your role in this mission is very important. And it's also a safety role. You don't want to make a mistake that could end the mission or cause a safety issue. And, you know, as far as, you know, what's it like being the first? So I, I wrote a book on this because I find it very interesting But in the Air Force, I was in the first class of women to go through pilot training at my base. And that was back in 1979. That was a long time ago. And the the world was very different. We were going through a test program to prove that women could fly military aircraft. And the women were very successful. And now they're totally integrated into flying. So if a woman wants to be a military pilot, she can do that. Because the women are, some of the women like to say the airplane doesn't know if the pilot is a man or a woman, which I find an interesting <laughs> perspective. Uh, but I think I think we also, if you're the first doing something, you have a responsibility to talk to the public. And that is something I think that comes after your mission, because you have to, first of all, you must fly a successful mission. You cannot make a mistake. Because I think, you know, they'd say, oh, look what the woman did. You know, she made, made a big mistake. So you don't want that to happen. And, there, and that pressure is on you. But once the mission is over, you um, if you're the first to do something, in my case, you know, being the first woman pilot and commander, I felt that I had a responsibility to talk to people uh, in many different areas of society, especially young women that are thinking about uh, what they want to do with their life someday. And, you know, through whether it's interviews or magazine articles, and, you know, today we have so much social media with podcasts, there's so many ways to get your message out. And that can be time consuming and it can be exhausting, but I think it's important for us to to do a, uh, you know, a balanced amount of that and uh, make sure that you give back 
and share your experiences. And, and like I said, that, that's why I wrote a book. I didn't put everything in there because I only had, I had a limit on how many words. So I might write, I might write a second book someday. The sequel. So many <laughs> interesting stories. And you know what? I, I thought it was a wonderful challenge and I feel very grateful that I had the opportunity to, to represent women and do that. That's it for T-Minus Deep Space for May 27th, 2023. We'd love to know what you think of our podcast. You can email us at space at n2k.com or submit our survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures that we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in this rapidly changing space industry. This episode was produced by Alice Carruth. Mixing by Elliot Peltzman and Trey Hester with original music and sound design by Elliot Peltzman. Our executive producer is Brandon Karp. Our chief intelligence officer is Eric Tillman. And I'm Maria Varmazis. Thanks for listening. Listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. Now.